Those of you who uh, weren't here last week won't know that I was away last week. I thought I'd just fill you in a little bit on what I was doing. I was in Washington, D.C. Um, for a week with an organization called International Justice Mission. Uh, some of you have heard of it and been a bit involved with it. So IJM is the world's largest and most influential anti-slavery organization working around the world to free people from slavery. There are 44-odd million slaves in the world. And IJM was started 19 years ago by a guy called Gary Haugen, who is, uh, I, sp I had the privilege of spending a couple of days with Gary, including like eight hours around a boardroom table with 12 of us thinking about the global strategy for IJM. And he is like a combination of Jesus and a Navy SEAL. Uh, an amazing guy, Harvard lawyer, tough, strong man who is, I mean, they're looking, they're, they're looking evil in the face every day and poking evil all around the world. Uh, facing death threats and persecution um, from really nasty people who, who are into human trafficking and all kinds of violent oppression of the poor. And so Gary is this, you know, like a Navy SEAL. He's tough, but he just exudes Jesus because he just, everything they do is birthed in prayer and this experience of God because they say there's no way we could do the work we do without God. So it was an extraordinary time for me. You'll hear lots more about it as we go, I'm sure. Um, uh, for me, you know, the, just to be, as Gary said, uh, so we, we had three days of meetings and then Friday and Saturday were just a, a global prayer gathering. They brought 2,000 people from around the world in the States. We just prayed uh, for two days for, for people in slavery and people is suffering from such sort of violence um, because they were poor and evil people can treat them with violence and get away with it, do it with impunity. And, and what was tough was Gary said, you know, to pray about evil with specificity and authenticity. So to, you know, we'd, put, we'd pray for cases and you'd put the names of the people who'd been murdered up on the board or who'd been kept in slavery or who are currently going through the courts and you'd pray for them and then you'd pray for the perpetrators. And that's tough, right? So in June last year, uh, three people involved with a case we're working on in Kenya were, um, so our lead investigator in Kenya, um, uh, Willie, the client, Josaphat, who was, uh, he, he was uh, basically suing the police, a complainant in a case of police abuse against him. They, they, the policeman had shot him and just for no good reason got away with it. And their driver, um, Joseph, in broad daylight, after a hearing, the police grabbed these three guys, put them in the back of a police truck, took them into a police cell, held them till the night, then took them out into the bush, beat them to death, and dumped their bodies. So they were our like IJM family who were killed because of the work they were doing. And so you know you have their photos up there, and you're talking about and praying for their family and for the work. So the, the trial was on in, in Nairobi, even while we were meeting in the States. It's still going on. And then they put the photo of the chief defendant, the police sergeant who orchestrated and is behind it. And then, you know, there's 2,000 of us looking at the photo of this guy who's just murdered one of our staff and, you know, a client. And you, now how do you pray for that, you know? That's tough. So it was an, an extraordinary uh, emotional and spiritual roller coaster. It was, ex it was wonderfully good, but also very challenging. So for me, for, for our church, I thought... But what excites me about IJM is there's a model that has been shown to work. We can actually end uh, violence against the poor. It's an entirely preventable thing. 
Um, when you reform the justice systems, you bring the poor under the protective shield of a functioning legal system. It works. Like we've had 20 years of casework to show it works. Now, uh, now we've just got to scale it up and, uh, and, and roll it out so justice for the poor becomes unstoppable. And I thought to myself, and this was I really what God said to me while we were there. I was like, you know, celebrities think slavery is a bad thing and are joining against it. And, you know, in America, both the Republicans and the Democrats passed an anti-slavery bill just before the new regime got in. And um, everybody think, everyone's against slavery. And I thought, well, actually, the body of Christ, the church, we should be right at the forefront of that. Like, we serve a God of justice who, from the get-go, has been rescuing people from slavery. Like, that's just what God does. And I thought, how cool would it be if we, were, if we were known in the city as a church that was on the forefront of mobilizing people to end slavery in our generation? And it's achievable, you know? With the current rates of decline in India, where um, there are 20 million bonded slaves, uh, bonded laborers, slaves in India, uh, with the rate of decline, it's not inconceivable that within 30 years, slavery could be ended in India. Uh, if, if we scale it up and work together with the Indian government who, you know, don't want slaves in their country either. So uh, it's very exciting. So I thought, how cool would it be if we as a church, and then if, if the church across Sydney was known for that, for, for justice and for, like, practical justice, you know, like the Navy SEAL Jesus kind of justice that actually works in the world to protect the poor. So I was pretty encouraged by that. So I'm excited at where, uh, where God might take us. And... Um, the other thing that was amazing was it's a youth movement around the world. So when I look around here, I go, this is a movement that is engaging young people everywhere. So, you know, 2,000 people praying together. Um, so many of them were like college students, high school students, college students, who'd saved up their money and come in their holidays to D.C. to come and pray. And they were folk in their 20s. And it was so wonderful. And women, gifted, strong women, leading this movement against slavery. So I was really pumped. I thought, this will be good. I'm very excited about what God might do uh, through us at Darling Street going forward and through you. So we can end slavery in our generation and we can do it as we lean deeply into the God of justice that we find in the Bible. Now, what does that have to do with the Bible reading? I hear you ask. Thank you for asking. Um, well, in this Bible reading, uh, Jesus answers for us the great big question of the ages about suffering. Hang on a moment, this is annoying me. Pen's, pencil's not working now. Why is it not working? There we go. Uh, the great question uh, that Jesus seeks to answer is this. Why? Uh, why is there suffering in the world, right? So look at it. They're walking along, and uh, they see, he sees a man blind from birth, a, a terrible uh, affliction. And his disciples say to him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See what the question is? Why is this man, uh, why is he suffering so? Who's to blame, Right? Uh, and there's really two answers that were commonly given then and are commonly given today. And what are they? Who's to blame? Well, us, ourselves, me, I'm to blame. So did the man sin? So 
is the pain that he is going through, his blindness as a result of choices that he made. Now, you might say, because you're smart, but hang on, he was born blind. Actually, the rabbis had this view that you could sin in utero. Don't quite get how you did that, but you know, they, they had this view that you could, still, you could still make these choices that would affect your life in utero. So the question is, uh, who's to blame? And one answer is me. Bad stuff happens to me because I have done bad stuff. Right? Now, um, what do we call that? Karma. What goes around comes around. If you're suffering, if you're struggling, it's because the world, the universe is giving you what you deserve. Now, um, you might say, oh, it's not really my thing, I'm not into karma. Uh, but have you, how many of you have heard of this uh, idea of positive psychology? A bit of positive psychology? Okay. Positive psychology says, and, and it's, you know, what really matters in life is your attitude. And you want to develop a positive frame on all of life, and that will make a huge difference to you, right? So you see this, this bleeds over into our approaches to things like cancer. So there's this great book I read a while back called Bright Side, which is the story of a, a, a counselor's experience, a psychologist's experience of this approach to cancer, particularly breast cancer. And she says, here's how positive psychology works. You get breast cancer, you get cancer, and, uh, and, and all the, everyone will tell you, you know what you've got to do? You've got to fight it. You've got to maintain a positive attitude. You, you wear pink ribbons and you dress it up and you, you fight the fight and everyone rallies around and they send prayers and good feelings and good vibes and positive energy your way. And if it all works... And if you stay positive, you can triumph. Okay, so what happens if you die of the cancer? Whose fault is that? Well, surely it's yours because you weren't positive enough. Right? That, this, is, this is how we... Now, it's, by the way, it's complete bollocks scientifically. The, 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 the studies show your attitude makes no difference to the survivability of cancer that afflicts you. You can be as miserable and grumpy as you like, and you might survive... Or you can be as positive and I'm going to defeat this thing and you'll cark it. It's just not connected in a direct one-on-one -on -one causal way to your positivity. Uh, here's another way this flows out into our lives. Uh, pop Buddhism. How many of you are into pop Buddhism? So pop Buddhism takes the teachings of Buddha and it just filters into everything. And here's what Buddhism says. Do you know suffering isn't really real? Do you know that if you have a hard time, the problem is not the suffering. The problem is your desires. And if you just attained sufficient detachment through the processes of meditation, you would be free from the pain of suffering because suffering is a withholding of good from you. And, but if you don't want the good in the first place, you're not, you, you won't suffer. Like if someone dies in your life, if you are sufficiently detached as a Buddhist... You, you, you won't have any longing for them or desire for them, so you won't actually suffer. Now, here's the question. If you do suffer, who's to blame? Well, you. Because you haven't meditated enough. You're not detached enough. We see this all around. Now, um, some of us go, well, that sucks. It's obviously not my fault that I'm suffering. Who, whose fault is it then? 
it's others' fault. It's someone else's fault. So the disciples say, was it him or was it his parents? He was a proto-Freudian. He says, well, you know, and there's a whole industry to help us understand that every problem we have is actually our parents' fault. Raise the hand. All the teenagers who agree with that. And I'm looking at you, Freya. Yeah, that's right. There we go. My daughter's not. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So we, well, it, it's obviously not my fault. It's someone else's fault. It's I am suffering because of the bad choices that other people made. Right? And we see this. This Actually, both these forms get, get worked out in terms of political ideology. So the sort of the left, classic Marxist socialist understanding of society says, you know the reason people are poor? Any good Marxists here? It's because they've been alienated from their means of production and, and, and the, the class structure has perpetuated this. So I'm not poor because... Of my choices, I'm poor because of the whole economic system and the way history is unfolding and the, the separation that I have from my means of production, which is essential to who I am. So it's not my fault that I'm poor. Right? I mean, the genetic determinists do the same thing, don't they? I, I, it's my genes made me do it. I can't help but be what I am. We, 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 we drink deeply from this well, don't we? Our entitled generation. Uh, it's not my fault. Bad things happen to me. Now, here's the thing. Um, you know what? Bad things happen to you because you do make dumb choices. There's a bit of truth in that, isn't there? And bad things happen to you because other people make dumb choices. There's a bit of truth in that. But it's not fully true. Life is just way, way, way more complicated than reducing it to those nice little simplistic connections. And, and the problem is, we love to simplify stuff, don't we? Because it gives us an illusion of control. So what we really want is, we want, a, we want a view of the world that says, I do X, and then there's a neat, direct, straight line to Y. Right? So if I'm good, good will happen to me. If I'm bad, bad will happen to me. Or if you're bad, bad will happen to me. If you're good, good will happen to me. That's what everyone wants. Now, just as an aside, the Pharisees in the story, if you've got any familiarity with the uh, New Testament, you'll know the Pharisees often get a bad rap. So the Pharisees, they come up and you go, boo, hiss, they're baddies. No, they're not. So what are the Pharisees doing? Why do they get so ticked with Jesus? They get ticked with Jesus because he's healing this bloke and, and working on the Sabbath. And you go, what's wrong with working on the Sabbath? Well... The great national tragedy, the genocide and exile of their nation happened, why? Because they'd broken God's law. So they did X, they broke the law, they ended up being massacred and exiled. They're now back in the promised land and the Pharisees are going, we don't want to be massacred again, so what are we going to do? Make sure that we never break the law. We're going to make sure no one ever violates the Sabbath because, Jesus, if you break the Sabbath, if you're a rebel, this could end up in national tragedy, as in fact it did in AD 70 in the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, a bunch of people, not unlike people thought Jesus was, led this great national revolt against Rome, which resulted in the, uh, you know, the massacre of Jewish people and their permanent destruction of the temple and uh, a tragedy that they had feared. So, before we think the Pharisees are baddies, they're just trying to protect their own interests in a world where there's a one-on-one -on -one causal link between actions and effects. Now, Life doesn't work like this, does it? <laughs> Think about it. 
it's kind of a statistical impossibility that you would be who you are. Like, there's an almost infinite number of possible universes that could exist. And the fact that this one exists is mind-blowing. And to think that it it's, can be explained by a simple series of cause and effects is weird. I mean, it, it looks more like this. Here's X, here's Y. And, and the cause and the kind of the causal link looks probably something much more like this, right? Like that's sort of, you're only beginning to just start to explore the, the interconnections between X and Y. It's just monumentally, infinitely complex, isn't it? I think about your own existence your conception uh, of all the millions of sperm that could have joined up with the somewhat more limited number of eggs uh, inside your mother, of all those millions of sperm, there was just one that connected with the egg. If it had been a different sperm, you would have been a different person. Have you ever thought about that? Like how infinitely unlikely is it that you would be here and who you, be who you are, and yet you are. And, and we try and reduce this monumental complexity and make it really simple because we like simplicity. And it gives us an illusion of control over the world, doesn't it? Well, I know if I do good, good will happen to me. If others do good, good will happen to me. Problem is, it doesn't work. And actually, it makes us, ends up making us really bitter. We either, it makes us bitter and angry if all the bad stuff that happens to me is a result of other people. Or it makes us unbelievably shame and guilt-ridden because everything that's gone wrong in my life is because of my choices. And neither of those are fully true. And Jesus offers a third way, which is very, very interesting, isn't it? What does Jesus say? Verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. It's, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. He says, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Three. Works of God displayed. That's why, that's the answer to the why. And before we dig deeper into this, and, and there's a whole lot to be said here, I just want you to notice this little, these two words here. You see that? So that. It's a purpose clause, produces a purpose clause. And the point of that is, listen, as Jesus looks at this man's suffering, he says it's got a purpose. There's a so that attached to the suffering. Like your suffering, Jesus says, my suffering, the suffering in this world actually has a purpose. We might struggle to understand it. We might struggle to accept it, but there is a, a purpose to it. If there is no God and we live in an empty, cold universe, then our suffering is ultimately purposeless. Like, it, you know, we're born, we grow up, we reproduce, we die, that's it. Whether our lives are good or full of beauty and joy or full of suffering and hardship, it makes no difference. But Jesus says it does. There's a so that, a so that attached to this man's suffering. And, and the so that is this, that the work of God might be displayed in him. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, uh, what we see in the story is that this man, this blind man, is healed, isn't he? he is, his sight is given back to him. 
that's the work of God. The work of God in John's gospel is to heal and restore all that has gone wrong in the world. You see, here's, if you look at this conceptually, you can say the way the Bible describes what has gone wrong is this. At the core of everything, we've messed up the fundamental relationship between us and God, our good creator. We've screwed that up. Because we've messed that up, everything else is messed up. So, at one level, so sin is responsible in general for all the suffering in the world. But sin is not responsible for any particular suffering. You know, so you can't you can't say there's this sin, this wrongdoing results in this necessarily. I mean in in terms of a whole bunch of categories of evil, in some where it's one person commits evil against another, obviously you can. But in this general category of, of suffering like blindness. But generally there's this the world is out of it's just messed up. Because we've screwed it up. We've messed up our relationship with God. We've messed up everything else. If you read Genesis chapter 3, right in the beginning, it's this amazing explanation of what's gone wrong. And it's like what God is doing uh, is he's he's unraveling or unpicking this mess and healing it and restoring it. He's he's getting to the, the absolute root of what's gone wrong with everything in the world. He's come to restore it and make it right. That's the work of God. When you read through John's gospel, you see him entering this world. This is God himself becoming flesh, bringing light into darkness, bringing healing into sickness, bringing justice into injustice, bringing life into death. That's what the work of God is. And he's saying this man is suffering. Why? So that this divine healing can be seen and displayed in him. And that's what we see, isn't it? I mean, you, this, is, this is what happens to him. He gets healed in a funny way, which is really interesting. <laughs> Let's think about that. He, after, after he says this, um, he says, we've got to work. He spits on the ground, makes some mud with the saliva and puts it in the man's eyes. Go, and, go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sin. So the man went and washed and came home seeing now, what on earth is now? What is going on there? Uh, the, the, the commentators all are going. Oh, I don't know. We're trying. To, is there some ancient sort of understanding of the power of saliva and blah 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 blah? John Calvin, writing in the 16th century, um, put it this way. He says he thinks what's going on. Here's a, here's a suggestion. We don't really know for sure, but maybe uh, maybe what's going on is Jesus healing sometimes makes it worse before it gets better. Like, because think about it, they would have known, you can be blind, there's blind and then there's blind, right? You can be legally blind today, but still have a bit of vision, can't you? Yeah. So it's like Jesus says, you know what? In order that people can see how complete my healing is, I'm going to make sure this guy is completely blind. I'm not going to put a blindfold on because he could peek out the bottom. So he mixes up a whole bunch of mud and puts a mud pack on his eyes. So he's like, he is now totally in the dark so that Jesus can totally heal him. Now, I just got thinking about this, and I thought, isn't it true that sometimes uh, when you come to faith, it actually makes things worse in the short term? Doesn't it? Like from, Sometimes you think, oh, gosh, if I get all religious and I come to Jesus, all my problems will go away. Man, they don't. And in fact, sometimes the pain can get worse. I'll tell you how. I'll tell you how it gets, it's got worse for me. The, the more I am a follower of Jesus, the more I find that uh, I, 
I'm open to all the pain in the world that Jesus is open to. And I feel that, you know? Like, I do stupid things, like at my own expense, fly to Washington and spend a week working crazy hours and thinking about how we're going to free people from slavery and immersed in the details of casework, of violence. Real, I mean, ugly violence. And my heart breaks. And, you know, that comes straight out of my faith. What moves me to do that? It's my faith, because Jesus cares about these people being oppressed, so I should. And, and, in, and my faith opens me up to your suffering and your hurt. You know, many of my friends who, who don't have faith uh, are much happier than me because they just don't think about the stuff I think about because they're like, I'll just go to work, make a pile of money, drink, do my wines and lines over lunch, whatever it is, um, you know, have my kids. Just I don't want to think about, you know, and sometimes, I, and you probably all find me this way as well, sometimes people find me a little intense. It's not just the Jewishness. It's like, like when you're open to all that stuff that's in the world, it really hurts. Bob Pierce, the guy who founded World Vision and Samaritan's Purse, he had this famous saying. He said, let our hearts uh, be broken by the things that break the heart of God. That, that's worse. That's worse much worse than you know but that's but you know what guess what that's actually the path to healing because when our hearts are broken with the things that break the heart of God we can actually follow Jesus into his work in the world which is to end suffering to end injustice that's 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 how you move into the world with Jesus that's how you make sense of suffering because you start to see God is doing something about it that's the work of God. He's come amongst us to put an end to it. He's the divine healer. Uh, when I was 17, I was in, in a first-year medical school in Cape Town, and I spent a month living in a refugee camp on the border of Mozambique, uh, up on the northeast. And um, there were lots of refugees coming in from the, the war or the fighting in Mozambique. And we were running a little clinic. Uh, none of us. I mean, I, I'd done one year of medicine. I you know, didn't know anything. Um, but we're doing this little, really no, not much more than first aid. And we get called across to a part of the camp. And this little, this little two-year-old had uh, managed to pull these sort of three-legged iron pots that they put on um, the fire. And she'd managed to pull this whole pot of boiling water over her whole body. And she was just scalded from... You know, all the way down her right side, just massive, massive burns. And, um, uh, you know, um, holding, holding this little child, this dying two-year-old in my arms, um, I realized that what the world needs is a healing that goes deeper than, than anything medicine can offer. Now, she might have survived if she'd had first-world medical treatment, but with the extent of those burns at that age and with that level of infection, who knows? But I thought what she needs is, what the world needs is a divine healer. We need a God who's going to come in and make sure that that never happens, that that's an unthinkable impossibility. And that's the work of God, to do that in the world. That's what he's come to do. That's the whole story of John's gospel. And we see in the story that progression is displayed in this man that he's brought from utter darkness that's actually exacerbated by Jesus' mud packs 
into light, into being able to see. And the, the Pharisees and everyone around realizes God is up to something. For a blind person to see means that, that this new world, this healing has come in. But it's not just that God who has work to do. In John's gospel, we also have work to do. And you know what our work is? This is the work that God wants from us. It's to believe in Jesus, according to John's gospel. That's the work we're to do, to believe, to trust, to align ourselves with Jesus and say, you know what? There's still a pile of questions around suffering, but, but we're going we're gonna to trust you, Jesus, as our healer and as the healer of the world. That's the work that we have to do. Now, of course, the question is, um, how, do you, how do you believe in Jesus? What's going to move you to do that? And how do you believe in Jesus when maybe you've got lots of pain and suffering in your life and, you know, it's a really hard thing to trust that there's a loving, good, powerful God you know, who's involved in the world and gives us hope. Well, here's, here's how we believe in Jesus. And, it's, and it goes back to the work of God because uh, Jesus says his work, I'll write this out, his, his work, let's go to this page, ah, other page. So Jesus, God's work, God's work, equals, you know, divine healing of the world, complete total healing. And the way this divine healing is going to be done is Jesus is going to do some work, and, and, and Jesus' work is going to bring about that divine healing. How? Well, in John 17, he says, my work is finished. What is it? When he hangs on the cross and he says, it is finished, what is he saying? He's saying Jesus' work, the work of Jesus, the way this divine healing is going to happen is by dying on the cross. This is the work that Jesus does. This is how the Bible says God heals the world. Now think about it. Uh, often there's a great problem with innocent people suffering. Listen, there's no such thing as a truly innocent person. I mean, this man, born blind, was also still a sinner, wasn't he? You know, you and I are still a mess. I had this stunning, not quite a staggering realization when I was um, away in, in D.C. I was hearing all these stories of violence against the poor. And I thought, in my family, you know, my family have experienced enormous violence against them. My Jewish family, we lost everything. We're refugees. Uh, many of my family lost their lives in the concentration camp. Uh, and experienced enormous violence against us. But then I got thinking, my family have also committed great violence against the poor. My dad was a mercenary in the Congo, committed war crimes. My brother was a, was a soldier in the South African Defense Force in Angola in the 80s. They committed war crimes. I know my family have committed horrendous, unspeakable acts of evil against innocent people. Like we're all a mess. We're all in this, right? There's no innocent person. The only innocent person who's ever lived was Jesus. And guess what happened to him? He was completely unjustly tried and crucified and killed in a horrendous death. Why? Because the light of the world had to be snuffed out to take away the darkness that you and I lived in. 
So the Bible says our injustice and oppression was laid on the one truly innocent person, Jesus, so that his freedom and justice could become ours. That's how we're healed. Our darkness gets laid on the Lord of life and his light is extinguished so that it can rise again in us. I mean, think about it. In the stories of the Gospels, when Jesus died, what happened to the whole world? It went dark, like night. The light of the world was extinguished by human evil, by everything that has gone wrong with this world was poured onto Jesus so that he could rise again and shine light into us. All our weakness and brokenness and sickness was poured onto him so that he could rise and give us healing. All your evil and my evil and all the evil of the world that is everywhere, all of this was poured onto Jesus and he became sin for us so that all his goodness could become yours and mine. That's the work of Jesus, to be torn apart, violated, killed, snuffed out for you and for me, to become the victim in the place of the perpetrator so that we, the perpetrators, could be freed and healed and restored. (laughs) So your work and my work is to believe this good news It's incredible news that God has done this for us, for the world. And then to work with God in the world to bring that news, that healing in all its fullness to everyone, everywhere. I'm glad. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm glad this blind man was born blind because we can see in him what God is up to. Do you, is, do you believe that? You're trusting Jesus. Now, it's not going to make all your suffering go away immediately just like that. Trusting Jesus is not going to answer every question you and I might have about evil and suffering and the ultimate origins of suffering and evil. But let me tell you that trusting Jesus will rescue you from bitterness from shame, from self-hatred. And you will find that your suffering and the suffering in this world has a purpose. You might not see it now, but you will see it in time and that there is hope. There is hope. The divine healer has come amongst us. Have you let him heal you? Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, uh, we ask for you to uh, heal us. (laughs) We ask you to heal this world. We thank you that you've come into this world. You've you've drunk from the, the cup of suffering. Your body was, your innocent body was torn apart by violence and injustice so that you could forgive and restore and set free perpetrators like us. Thank you that you're a good, good father to us. He has nothing but love for us. And we see that so clearly on the cross. So Jesus, help each of us here tonight to trust you.
with all the circumstances and challenges of our life. 